This episode of Shaun of the South is brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy, the fisherman, the woodcarver, and the Southern Baptist, who always said the best cure for idle hands is to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife. You're listening to Shaun of the South, and we are coming to you live. That music you hear behind me is the South family from Knoxville, Tennessee. It's the winter time, I know, and it's a gray, depressing time. The sun is just hidden from the world, and a gray quilt hangs over the treetops. You can almost see the shadow that it casts 
on the world. It is a dark time and it is chilly. Even down south, it's chilly. There was snow in North Carolina and South Carolina. I saw a photograph from South Carolina. The palm trees were covered in snow. It's wrong. But spring is coming because we have always experienced four seasons throughout our entire life. We have actual evidence that spring will be here. And I like this. I like having a little bit of evidence every now and then that good things actually do happen. It was springtime when several of us 11 and 12-year-old boys chased after Henry Reynolds when he was leaving the parking lot of church. I can remember that day because I love spring so much. It's the time of year when you're drunk with the smells of the earth and insects begin to populate the atmosphere and you can reach your hand out and swat the air and you can catch 10 or 12 ladybugs. And if you're lucky enough in the middle of the night, you can sit next to a pond reflection and you can see lightning bugs making strange patterns and formations above the surface of the water. We were following Henry out to his car, his car was at the edge of the parking lot. It was a 1968 Ford Falcon Silver. He had restored it himself, and he kept this thing in pristine shape, which is why he parked it at the edge of the parking lot. We followed him out there because we knew he was going to work. Henry was a maintenance man and a security guard all wrapped up into one at the Twin Oaks apartment complex across town. On Sundays, he made his maintenance calls because that's when most of the people were home after a full work week, and they'd let him into their apartments. He would fix their loose ceiling fans or their power receptacles, which did not work, or plaster the spots and holes on their walls, or fill in the puttied nail holes from a young woman's apartment who kept too many posters of half-naked men on her walls. We followed him out to his car because we knew that he, being a security guard, would have a pistol on his belt. And 11 and 12-year-old boys are the kinds of creatures who do nothing but sit around all day and think about girls, boogers, guns, farts, and girls. And we knew that Henry was always good for a demonstration of a firearm. We followed him and we said, Henry, Henry, show us, show us the gun. And he'd always do the same thing. He'd pretend that, that he didn't know what we were talking about. He was wearing green plaid pants and white patent leather shoes and he was loosening his orange tie and he reached into his back seat and he unstrapped the firearm from its leather holster and he held it up to the sunlight and he inspected the barrel to make sure that the chambers were empty. He slapped the barrel and it made a clicking, spinning noise and then he handed the gun to Andrew and Andrew held it like he was holding a relic from St. Peter. He pointed it into the distance and he said pow pow I'm the lone ranger and he passed it around to us 11 year olds and 12 year olds and each one of us almost made bricks in our pants <laughs> and then Henry said I have to go to work and he would take the gun from us 
and he'd light a cigarette and we'd watch his 68 gray falcon drive down the road and we thought that this man was the coolest deacon <laughs> at the Baptist church we'd ever known. Most deacons, you will note, in a Baptist congregation sign a slip of paper that says they will not smoke, drink, cuss, or smile at anybody who does. But Henry was different. He would smile at anybody within smiling distance. He was a good man. My mother said that Henry and his wife, Pamela, were the ideal couple when they got married a long, long time ago. Everybody expected them to have all sorts of babies and make the perfect family. But that's not how life worked out for him. Henry discovered early on that Pamela had some problems in her female parts, and she wasn't able to have a child. But that was nothing compared to the blow they received when they found out she had breast cancer. And it killed her nine months later. After nine months, Henry was standing, looking into a hole in the ground, and when the dirt mounded over that hole, he was still standing there, looking at it. Dreams of a family that they were going to have had just vanished. The Twin Oaks apartment complex on the other side of town one time used to be a nice place to live. It used to have lattice work out front and azalea bushes and camellias and it was painted a pale yellow color with green shutters and green shingles on the top of the roof and it looked like a place you could raise a family in. Not fancy but nice. But time had not been kind to the Twin Oaks apartment complex. It had degenerated itself into what we lovingly refer to as the ghetto. It was a place where you could pull into the parking lot and you could find shirtless young men hollering at one another while sipping from brown paper sacks. Or you could find these red glittery cars which had been jacked up with hydraulic suspension systems which would violently bounce them up and down and side to side as if the invisible hand of a toddler sitting in a sandbox was banging it against the pavement. Fights broke out there all the time. And there had even been a few shootings at the Twin Oaks apartment complex. And this is why they hired Henry to be the security guard. That day he was there to repair the roof. There was a leaky patch of ceiling just over Unit 327. He crawled out of his falcon and he went to the maintenance shed and he removed a ladder, a two-story ladder, and he had the innate ability to open that ladder on his own using nothing but his manpower and lift that ladder and stand it up on its end. That is a hard thing to do, but he was a, a strong man inside. I guess most men who have to sit through Baptist deacons meetings have to be strong. <laughs> crawled up onto that roof and it was a little bit sunny because the spring weather was infectious and while he was spreading tar over a spot on the roof he heard something he heard something coming from the unit below it must have been unit 327 he pressed his ear against the roof and as soon as he did it he knew it was a bad idea because the sun had heated up those shingles and it scorched his ear he crawled down that ladder he walked up the staircase into the breezeway. He listened and he heard hollering, a girl's voice hollering. 
and he pressed his ear against the unit 327 and he knocked on the door and he said, Hello, hello, it's the maintenance man. And there was still more hollering, still more screaming. And it concerned him. He placed his right hand on his firearm. He'd never had to use it before, but this might be the day. And he, against his better judgment, placed the master key that he had for the apartment into the lock. And he stepped in very cautiously, trying not to make a sound with his boots on the tile. And as soon as he walked inside, he saw pallets made of quilts and pillows all around the room. There must have been 30 of them in a semicircle, these beds on the floor. There was no furniture. There were no bookshelves, no dressers, no mirrors, no pictures on the walls. And in the kitchen, there were 50-pound sacks of rice and flour and cans of beans and buckets of lard. And this was it. He walked closer to the bathroom. That's where the moans were coming from. He could hear them. He walked into the bathroom. He had his gun in his right hand, and that's when he saw her. She had midnight black hair and a pink blouse, which was covered in sweat. She was panting. Her forehead was glistening, and she had a large, distended belly. Her hands were resting on her belly, and she had the look of pain on her face. She was in the bathtub, but there was no water in it. And she said, Ayúdame, ayúdame, porfa, ayúdame. And Henry pressed the brim of his cap up, and he took in a few sharp breaths, and he felt helpless. He knew she was about to go into labor, but he'd never done anything like this in his life. In fact, the most important, complicated thing he had ever done was changing the suspension bushings on a 1957 Cadillac. These suspension bushings came in the mail with an instruction booklet, and it had taken him two afternoons and two six-packs of beer to finish the job. This was altogether different. He had never given birth. He'd never seen it done, except when he watched his uncle Julius give birth to a cow when he was 14 years old. He said, I'll call for help. She said, no, ahora, ahorita, porfa, porfa, ayúdame. He said, right. (laughs) He got into the bathtub with her. And he placed his boots next to her bare feet and he squatted down. He had no idea what in the hell he was doing. (laughs) He removed the holster made of leather on his belt and he set it on the floor. And he took off his hat and he rubbed his hands together. And all of a sudden, the bottom of the bathtub filled with a fluid-like substance. And she had a look of surprise on her face. And she said, Ay Dios, ay Dios. He said, what? What? She said, rompí fuente y pude sentir mi bebé saliendo. He said, okay. (laughs) I'm good. How are you? (laughs) And that's when it happened. He saw the head Somehow he almost knew what to do. He held her hand and he said, push, push. And she grit her teeth and she wrinkled up her face and she squeezed his hand so hard that her knuckles went white. 
and she screamed. And the baby came out. And it was a healthy child. And he held it into his arms. And even though he was a Baptist deacon, even though he had been a Baptist deacon for 12 years and had gone to business meeting upon business meeting upon business meeting, and he had signed the paper that said he would not smile at anyone who smoked, drank, or cussed, he said, Jesus Christ. And the girl smiled and said, Jesus. Jesus. And she took the baby from his arms and she pet the baby's hair and she said, Jesus. Ay, Chuchito Jesus. And he leaned against the wall and he watched that Mexican girl almost fall asleep. There was a look of not just relief on her face, but satisfaction. He stood up, he walked out of the bathroom, and he went to the balcony, and he lit himself a cigarette. He did not care who in the Baptist congregation might be watching or might not be watching. He smoked that cigarette inside of two seconds. When it was finished, he walked in to find her in the bathtub, completely asleep. He woke her, and he asked her about her life. She was able to speak just enough English to communicate with him monosyllabic words about who she was and where she came from. He found out she came from Mexico. He found out that she'd come with her boyfriend and when he'd found out she was pregnant he left her and she was trapped in this life, an immigrant living in an apartment building with 30 other immigrants and there was no way out. She worked in the laundromat of a local hotel and this was life. And now she would be missing work because of having a child and because of her not earning any money she would have no place to stay she communicated all this to him in very small plain spoken English words something came over him it was a kind of confidence that he knew he had to do something he picked her up he helped get her dressed and then he helped her down the stairs into his 1968 gray falcon and he drove her home with baby Jesus in her arms. He carried her out of the car once they arrived at his house and he walked her down his hallway. On his walls were pictures of Pamela and the life that he had begun with her, one that had ended far too soon. And when he got her to the end of the hallway, he kicked open a door and it was a room he had not gone in in a long, long time. The room was painted pink. And he remembered the day that room had been painted. It was 1974. He was coming home early from work at the paper mill. And he saw Pamela rolling a pink roller against those walls. And he said, what are you doing, honey? And she stopped and she looked at him and she said, I think we're going to have a girl. It was the same girl that she miscarried. It was the same girl that they named Sarah even though she never was. He placed this young girl, this Mexican girl, in that single bed, in that vacant room, which had never been warmed with the spirit of a child. He said, what's your name? She said, me llamo Maria. And he remembered enough from ninth grade Spanish to say, mi nombre es Henry. 
gente amable usted, Henry. He took baby Jesus from her arms and he opened a drawer in the dresser across the bedroom. He lined this drawer with quilts and he placed the baby inside and he rubbed that child's furry mop of black hair. And he sat in a chair and he watched the both of them sleep. There's a pleasant sound that a woman who's just given birth makes when she sleeps. It is an angelic sound. A few days later, he went to the deacon's meeting. And after an ample discussion on VBS facilitation and church finances when it came to the choir acquiring new robes because the air conditioner vent had leaked and spilt a greenish funk water all over the sacred vestments, thereby rendering them with the same smell of a retired jockstrap. <laughs> Henry stood up and he said, A funny thing happened to me a few days ago. Henry asked for everything. He asked for baby beds. He asked for cribs. He asked for diapers, for baby formula. He asked to help this woman attain her visa, to attain citizenship. And the men did not give him the response he expected. They looked around at each other, and they had furrowed brows. And George Walton stood up, and he said, You mean to tell me you are harboring an illegal immigrant at your house? Henry got real quiet. He had served with these men for 12 years. He had helped organize bake sales to raise money for the youth group. He had helped locate the new music minister who had once sang in Nashville professionally and bring him down and get him appropriated in a house and help his family buy a washer and a dryer and a car. And these deacons would not come off a dime for a young woman. And Henry ducked his head and he said, I will never ask this board for another thing in my life. And he walked out of that room. He went home and he did what any respectable Southern Baptist does when faced with supreme injustice. He turned on Family Feud and he opened himself up a beer. He held baby Jesus against his chest and the child had a small face and he'd been been listening to the way that the young woman Maria had been talking to this child. She called him Muñeco. Muñeco. He held this baby. The child's skull was just enough to fill his entire right palm. He'd never felt this emotion he felt inside his chest. It was a heavy feeling that seemed to press his heart. And it was one day that he was laying in his recliner and they were both watching the television. It was Spanish television and there was a buxom young woman with dark black hair speaking rapidly to a fine looking young man with broad shoulders and a square jaw. And while Henry held that baby, he looked at the TV and he said, I have no earthly idea what them two are saying. Do you, Jesus? And there was a knock at the door. It was George Walton. And he stood holding a box, a cardboard box in his arms. And Henry answered the door with little Jesus tucked against his chest. And he said, what in the hell do you want? 
George Walton spoke in a low voice. He said, Henry, I'm ashamed of myself. I'm ashamed of myself. And we've all been gathering our things together. We've got baby formula. We've got diapers. Old Peter and Tom, they've, they've come up with some cribs and some baby furniture that, that they've gathered from the congregation. And we're still taking in more donations. We've got somebody working on her, on her citizenship paperwork. And we'd like to get her a green card or a visa. Can I come in? And George walked in. He sat down the box. Behind him came a small young woman. She spoke rapid Spanish to Maria. And as it happened, she was married to a Chilean missionary. And she spoke fluent Spanish. Over the next few months, this girl frequented Henry's place. And she showed up and she gave Maria Spanish lessons five days per week. And Maria's mind was like a sponge. She absorbed every lesson. And her English got stronger every day until she was using triple-syllable words that Henry himself didn't even understand in average conversation. Every night would be the same. He would sit in that easy recliner watching television, watching Bonanza or Big Valley with Jesus against his chest. And he would listen to them talk and he'd listen to the high-pitched sounds of female giggling in the kitchen and it made him smile. Maria lived in that pink room down the hall. And Jesus grew out of his crib. And those were the happiest days of Henry Reynolds' life. Maria met a boy, a Georgia boy, who worked at a textile factory. He could speak Spanish, but he was born in Georgia. He was a citizen, and he was a good man. After four dates, he asked Maria to marry him. And Henry was a little bit saddened to think Maria would be leaving. It was Henry who went to the courthouse with the boy and Maria. And it was Henry who held baby Jesus when the judge said, Who gives this woman away? Henry said, Soy yo, your honor. Henry remembers helping that boy load the U-Haul. To the hilt. Henry went into his own storage unit and he unloaded boxes and furniture. There were pictures and mirrors and side tables and dining room tables and mattresses and bed frames and desks and dishes. He gave them the box of Pamela's fine china which she had received on the day of their own wedding. He gave them boxes of silverware. He gave them pens and pencils. He gave them an old piano, an old camping set. Hammers and drills and pots and pans, everything that they would need to start a life. And after the U-Haul trailer was packed, it was so loaded that the trailer seemed to tilt backward when they drove out of his driveway. But before they left, Maria came to him and she hugged Henry. And tears, warm tears, that he hadn't felt in a long time rolled down his old cheeks and he kissed her forehead and he said something he'd been practicing for many, many months since he'd met her. He said, Tu cambiaste mi vida, pequeña. She smiled and she said, Ay Dios, you changed my life, Henry.
She left. And Henry will recall that was the greatest, greatest year of his entire life. There are a lot of people out there who will tell you that when the winter comes, it is forever. But they're lying to you. Because no matter how bad it gets, springtime is around the corner. Thanks for listening to Shaun of the South. I've been your host, Sean Dietrich, and it has been a pleasure. That music here behind me is the Family Sow from Knoxville, Tennessee, winners of the KSMU Youth Bluegrass Contest in Branson, Missouri. Jacob, Joshua, Naomi, Abigail, John, Mark, and their mama, Cindy, playing music that you can find at thefamilysowl.com or on Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, and any other outlet you can think of online. To find out anything more about what I do, you can visit seanofthesouth.com. And while you're there, I hope you drop me a line because I love to hear from my friends. And speaking of friends, friends, be careful. Don't follow the masses because sometimes the M is silent. Adios. <laughs>